We are continuing in our series in the book of Colossians, and uh, Colossians chapter 2, and I'm, we're really going too quickly through this book. There's a lot here. Paul's written a very short letter to the church in Colossae, the city in Colossae, and because it's a short letter, he moves very quickly through themes that he expands on in other books and other letters uh, that he wrote. And uh, so we're going fairly quickly through this letter, even though it's very dense with meaning and very filled with the gospel. And last week we looked at uh, Paul setting forth to the city of Colossae or to the Christians there uh, the preeminence of Jesus Christ, that they, he was concerned that they were being deceived by different gospels and people were coming in and giving them different messages. And so he started off by just saying, I want to explain to you in his... Uh, clearly as I can, the preeminence of Jesus Christ, how he is the ruler and authority, uh, that he is the firstborn, that he is uh, our salvation and our redemption and the love of God uh, that, uh, that that came through. Uh, what the Father did, what this, how, how he acted through the Son, what was accomplished on the cross for us. And uh, as we go into Colossians chapter 2 now, we're going to be looking, uh, as Paul again, tries to clarify for these Christians in in the city of Colossae that he never actually met. He wants to clarify for them some things. And so I'm just going to read, starting at, at verse 6, where Glenda started, uh, which is not our core text, but I'm going to read that introductory text uh, to get us started and then move on to verses 11 uh, to 14. So it says in Colossians 2, verse 6, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now built up in him and established in your faith just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. That was his important point that he wanted to get across in chapter 1. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. And so Paul's concern for the church then was that having begun with the gospel that was preached to them by Epaphras, he mentions Epaphras in chapter 1 and again in chapter 4, and so this man Epaphras, who was probably a disciple of Paul's, probably planted the church in Colossae, and so this is not a church that Paul planted, not a church that Paul even visited, but he knows that Epaphras gave them the gospel and that it was a true gospel and that Epaphras struggled for them in prayer and was concerned for them. And he's concerned that having started with the good gospel that Epaphras had given them, they were being deceived and distracted from the truth. And so Paul provided that summary of the magnificence of God's love that was expressed through his son on the cross for our forgiveness so that we could be reconciled and forgiven and unalienated and redeemed and set free and able to be presented before God to enjoy his presence forever. He packed all of that into like two paragraphs. And here he wants them to not be deceived, specifically by philosophies or by any sort of deception according to tradition or principles of the world. And and that's important, what he wants to teach there. And we're going to come back actually next week and deal with that text as he picks it up again at the end of chapter 2. But today, as Paul is sort of restating the authority and headship of Jesus here, he adds on to all that he said earlier about the supremacy of Jesus and the true gospel He adds on to that and reminds the Christians of Colossians about their baptism and about who they are in Christ. And so he says in verse 11, our main text today, he goes on to say, And in him, that's in Jesus, you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, 
in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. And then to make it really final, he goes on and concludes, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And so Paul wants to get something across here to the Christians in the city of Colossae. He wants to get something across to them about their baptism and about who they are and what that means to them. And so right off the bat this morning, I want to apologize ahead of time to all the males in the congregation because I have to, using this text, repeat the word circumcision several dozen times. And I know that it makes you flinch every time you read or hear the word circumcision. And, you know, all I can offer as a consolation is that I had to study this all week and reread this about 20 times and redraft and edit my sermon a couple times. So I've been doing this all week, wincing constantly as I prepare this, uh, as I prepare this message. And so, if I see you flinching, that's okay, you know, but just be ready. I'm going to say circumcision a lot and uh, because it's what's Paul talking about here and uh, the relationship between circumcision and baptism, uh, what it means for the Jewish people and what it means for the Gentile people. And so what is going on here? Why is Paul now talking about circumcision? I mean, isn't that very Old Testament-y? Isn't that very uh, kind of Jewishy? Uh, you know, what does that have to do with Greek Christians in a Greek city of Colossae? What does it have to do with us? Why would Paul start talking about this? And in order to understand why Paul would bring this up and what he wants to teach in it, we do have to get a little bit of background on our understanding of what circumcision is and was. And so with circumcision, we understand that it's concerning the flesh. Circumcision was an issue, quite literally, of the flesh, that the flesh was cut away. In Genesis 17:11, God gives instructions to his people, and he says, You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And so it was a sign that the fleshly nature was cut away, that what that, that the people of Israel would be set apart, that they would be different than all the other nations in the world, and that God had given them a sign of their flesh being removed, of their flesh being cut away. And secondly, that it was an entrance into a covenant community. Genesis 17.12 goes on to say, it says, He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. And so... An eight-year, an eight-day-old child was a Jewish child. If they were born in the nation of Israel, was circumcised, and they were circumcised in order to gain entrance into the covenant community of Israel. God wanted to set apart a people. He chose Abraham and Abraham's descendants, and He said, "I'm going to set you apart, and I give you this promise. And through your through your seed, many nations of the world will be blessed." Right, and all these different promises that he gave them. And so Israel was set apart differently, and the Jewish children, as they were born into that community, they were, the males were circumcised in order to set them apart. And this was critically important. It was so important to the Jewish people, this ritual or this sign or this ceremony, this symbol of circumcision. Paul knew it was something that the Jewish people could and would boast in, that it was something that they would feel assured in. 
You remember when Jesus was teaching, quite often he was teaching to the Pharisees, and he would be talking about uh, their relationship with God the Father and, and questioning their righteousness. And they would, the Pharisees inevitably would say, why are you talking to us? We are Pharisees. We're circumcised. Our father is Abraham. We're part of the whole Israel, the whole nation of Israel. We're part of that whole tradition. You can't talk to us about our righteousness. You can't talk to us about the law. You can't talk to us the way you're talking about us because we're circumcised Jews. We are children of Abraham and we carry the sign of that. How can you speak to us that way? And Paul himself, he knew it was something that he could boast in when he was a Pharisee. He says in Philippians 3, 4-5, he says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and as to the law, a Pharisee. And so Paul knew that this sign and this ceremony and this symbol of circumcision was deeply important to the Jewish people. That they carried it with them more than just a badge of who they were, but it was their confidence that they were righteous that they were God's chosen people and that God would never reject them. It was a sign of the covenant that God had with them. God gave us this sign as a covenant. And so we are saved. We are his righteous people. How can Jesus and Paul and these people come and talk to us the way that they talk to us when we have this sign? The children of Israel were the children of circumcision, both male and female, both born through circumcision and the males receiving circumcision. But even though it was painfully physical, it was still only a picture of what was ultimately truly spiritual. In Romans 2, 25-29, Paul makes really clear what the meaning of circumcision was. And we need to understand this in the context as we move from circumcision into baptism the way Paul does. So just in Romans 2, 25, he says, Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law you have become as though you had not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? No, a man, skipping to 29, no, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. And so as you read that in the book of Romans, or in the letter of Romans, we're reading this in the teaching of Paul. This is Paul the Apostle teaching this about circumcision, but it's important for us to understand before we move from circumcision into baptism, it's important for us to understand that this is not Paul's interpretation of circumcision. Okay, This is not just Paul reinterpreting circumcision to fit his ethic, or to fit his Christianity, or to fit his gospel. He hasn't come along and changed what circumcision means. Paul is actually teaching what the Old Testament always taught about circumcision, but the Jewish people never fully grasped. He's not reimagining it in a new way. He's teaching what was always true, that circumcision was always a physical sign of a spiritual reality, that it was never meant to be taken with confidence simply because you were a child of circumcision or you yourself were circumcised. The Old Testament teachers and prophets, they speak in terms of things like uh, circumcised ears or circumcised lips and most often circumcised hearts. In Exodus 6.12, Moses is uh, arguing with God at this point, but he says, why will they listen to me, I who have uncircumcised lips? Moses is acknowledging that 
His lips are just fleshly lips. He's not a spiritual teacher. He's, he's a fallen person. Why would they listen to me? I, I'm an unclean person. Why would they listen to my words? Or in Jeremiah 6.10, the prophet and God doubt who will hear his words because as the prophet is speaking and he's speaking the word of God in Jeremiah, he says they have uncircumcised ears. They're not going to listen. These are not a holy people. They are not, they don't have ears that are tuned to the word of God and, and being able to hear the things that are holy because their ears are uncircumcised. Now clearly, this is not a physical reality. Uncircumcised lips, uncircumcised ears. The Old Testament was not talking about circumcision in terms of a physical reality, but in terms of a spiritual reality. And so Paul's not teaching anything new. But most often, Moses and the prophets and the teachers of the Old Testament refer to circumcision of the heart. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, the circumcision of our hearts is actually presented as something that God promises to do if Israel will repent and return to Him. If you return and if you repay, He lists a whole set of promises in verses 3 and 5 in, in Deuteronomy 30. But He goes on to say in Deuteronomy 36, He says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. Circumcision was a physical sign of a spiritual reality. It was not intended to be a symbol or a ritual or a ceremony that somehow constrained God and forced Him to accept a certain people because they did a certain thing. That type of thinking is like magic that I can somehow perform a ceremony or a ritual or do something and somehow constrain God by what I do. That's a, the wrong way of thinking. S- circumcision was always a physical sign for us from God. But what was really happening was it was a sign of what he was doing spiritually, that he would circumcise our hearts. So circumcision was a physical sign of a spiritual reality, a reality of what God would do but carrying with it the imperative or the command of how, given that God has done this, how we then would live. And in the exact same breath as Paul is mentioning circumcision in our letter to the Colossians, in the exact same breath, doesn't even start a new sentence, he then moves on and starts to talk about and calling to mind the reality of baptism. That Paul, first of all, brings to mind these ideas of circumcision, and then goes on to these Colossians the reality of their own Christian baptism. Because he knows a lot of them may not have been circumcised. For sure, they were Greeks, right? Not a lot of Jews necessarily living in Colossae, a Greek town, a Roman town. And so he realizes that they've been baptized, but he wants to connect the dots between what the Jews thought of circumcision and what the Bible taught of circumcision and what the Bible teaches of baptism. And believe it or not, you're in a Baptist church. And so this might be important to us as Baptists. What does Paul have to say about the meaning of circumcision and the meaning of baptism? And that's what we want to learn today is what is Paul teaching? Why is he bringing this to the minds of the Colossians and to us as Christians? Why does he connect it to baptism? Well, in baptism, we have to understand a few things about baptism now as well before we can put the two together. First of all, that baptism itself is a better sign of a better covenant. The sign of baptism is not simply a cutting away of flesh, but it is the death of our old flesh. In Hebrews 8.6 says that, But now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood. 
For He is the one who mediates for us a far better covenant with God based on better promises. And so the Jewish people, Israel had circumcision and it had the law and it had the covenant, the old covenant or the old testament. Covenant, testament means the same thing if you were confused about that. So you can say the old covenant or the old testament And they had circumcision that went along with the Old Covenant. But here in Hebrews it says Jesus has come and He mediates for us a far better covenant. We have the New Covenant. We have the New Testament. And it's a far better covenant based on far better promises. And so baptism is the sign, a better sign of a better covenant. That it's not simply flesh that is cut away, but flesh that is put to death. Concerning our flesh, that it's dead and is buried with Jesus, he says in Colossians 2.12. He says, having been buried with Him in baptism. And so there has not only been a wound made against our old self, our old flesh has not simply been wounded, our old self, our old flesh, our old nature has been crucified with Jesus and has gone into the grave. That is the going under of the water of baptism. You are going down into the grave. And so the flesh is not just wounded, the flesh is not just cut away in the new covenant. This is a better covenant. Now our flesh is actually put to death. Our old sinful nature is destroyed on the cross by what Jesus did and is put to death. And this is the spiritual reality of what has taken place. Even though you, along with me and along with the Apostle Paul, on many days can say, my flesh does not feel very dead. My old nature sometimes feels very much alive. Some days it feels like it is hard to resist how alive my old nature is. But it is not the works of our flesh by which we're considered righteous or redeemed or forgiven or unalienated or all those things we talked about last week. It's by what Jesus did on the cross that we are counted righteous and our flesh and our sinful nature is dead, not based on our behavior and our actions. And so it's by what Jesus did and what baptism symbolizes where our salvation lies. The promise of the old covenant is that we're counted as righteous and that we are saved by the death of Jesus on the cross. And that's where our salvation lies. And that's what baptism symbolizes by the going down into the water concerning our flesh that it is dead and buried with Jesus. And then concerning us, the new covenant, the better covenant, with better promises concerning us that we have new life, that we are risen in Jesus, that we come up out of the water, we don't stay there. He says in Colossians 2.13, Paul goes on, he says, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. And so when Jesus rolls that stone away and comes bodily out of the grave, made alive in his new glorified body, the first fruits the firstborn in the new glorified reality of His flesh, we are made alive with Jesus in that same way. And you, like Paul or me, might say, I don't feel that way. I don't feel like I have that glorified, righteous body yet. And it's true, just like we are not completely dead to our flesh yet physically, and our sin physically still resides in us. We are not yet glorified and in our resurrection body yet. But Paul says there is a spiritual reality that has taken place here that has been accomplished by Jesus and is symbolized in baptism. Your sin really has been forgiven. Your old nature really is put to death on the cross with Christ. And you really are glorified and counted righteous and will be sanctified and glorified when you are risen from the dead with Jesus. You have been raised to life with Jesus. This is a reality that has happened spiritually. 
and is symbolized in baptism for us. It's a picture of what is happening in us right now as we are being sanctified. We have new life risen in Jesus. Baptism is a sanctifying grace. Our flesh is put to death to the degree that we live out physically what baptism symbolizes spiritually. As we live out our life in a way that puts our old sinful nature to death, it becomes more and more a physical reality for us what is spiritually true. Also recognize here that baptism is voluntary. And I'll just mention here that there's a few different views on the timing of baptism out there in the evangelical world. There's different denominations and different people who have different ideas about when you should be baptized or the timing of it or what it signifies. Whether it should be done... Uh, you know, near birth in a Christian family, or whether it should be done only as a profession of faith as an adult. And as a Baptist church, we baptize believers when they come to faith. We don't baptize infants. We don't baptize children. But this connection between circumcision and baptism is so close that there are many faithful evangelical brothers and sisters in Christ who I disagree with, but who firmly hold to the fact that they, sh- that we should baptize infants. You know, and the, But because of this connection, it's so close that's made by Paul between circumcision and baptism, they would say that just as Jewish children were circumcised on the eighth day or when they were children, and that was a sign of their entrance into a covenant community, well, we should baptize our children because they are, in a manner of speaking, entering into a covenant community, and so we should baptize them and give them the same sign. And that it's the same way that circumcision worked. And There's many diverse arguments about that, which is not the point of this sermon. If you have questions about that, you can take the baptism class or ask me later and I'll talk about that. I'm not going to get caught in the weeds of how and why we choose to baptize at different times in life. But if you want to view baptism as a sign of the covenant in the same way as circumcision, then I think the simplest way to recognize that both circumcision and baptism are meant to occur at the time of birth. I think that's how they're the same. Both circumcision and baptism are both meant to occur very shortly after the time of birth. However, in the old covenant, children were physically born, were physically circumcised into a physical ethnic nation of Israel. But in the new covenant, we are born again spiritually and we are, excuse me, baptized into a spiritual nation. And so both circumcision and baptism occur at the point of new birth. But in the New Covenant, when are we born again? We're born again when we accept Christ as an adult, when we put our mind and our hearts and we pledge ourselves to God as a matter of good conscience and we put our trust in Jesus. That's when we're born again. And so when we are newly born as Christians, we believe then you very shortly afterwards get baptized and receive the sign of that New Covenant. And so both circumcision and baptism both happen shortly after birth. We just differ, some denominations differ on when that birth occurs. I like the idea that it's in our spiritual birth and in our new birth that we are baptized. That's the evidence and that's the, what we see happening in the new, Te- new Covenant Church, in the New Testament Church. That's when people were baptized. And so that's why we practice that way here. But now what does all this mean? There's, there's, there's things going on in circumcision and baptism, but especially for us today in baptism that we need to look at. And so as most of you are Christians and probably most of you are baptized, or very, very many of you are baptism, There's sort of two dangers as we look back on our baptism, and I'll get to the looking forward in just a minute. As we're looking back on our baptism today, there's sort of two dangers that you could fall into, either making too much of your baptism or making too little of it. Baptism is still a picture of a spiritual reality. 
And so you have been baptized, but you may have made too much of it. You may be counting on it for your confidence to stand before Jesus as proof that you are in Him, that you are a participant in His life as a receiver of His forgiveness. But in fact, no such confidence should exist because physical baptism pictures your death and resurrection in Jesus Christ. It does not perform your death and resurrection in Jesus Christ. There is no saving value in baptism. And so you can fall into that danger of putting too much emphasis on your baptism. That you could say, uh, you might say, or like some people say that, um, you know, you can say what you want about my sin, or you can say what you want about my heart, or you can say what you want about my life, just like the Pharisees did of Jesus, right? They were like, Jesus, you come in here talking a good talk. You can say what you want. You can call us all the names in the book. You can tell us we don't understand the law. But you know what? We're circumcised. And as Christians, we can fall into the habit. You, depending on how you were taught or, or how you grew up in your family or how you came to know Jesus or whatever, you might say, you know what, I know I'm living this way and I know I've wandered from the church and I don't listen to my parents and I know I'm making a lot of bad choices. But you know what, I got baptized when I was 10 years old. I'm fine. I, I, I'm baptized. I'm a baptized believer. And so I have confidence that you know Jesus is going to accept me because I'm baptized. There's no more confidence in that than the Jews could have in circumcision. You can make too much of your baptism and think that your baptism is some sort of magic ticket that gets you into heaven. And you cannot constrain God by ceremony and by ritual. God does not work that way. There's no ceremony, there's no ritual, there's no words that I can speak over you, there's no pope or cardinal or bishop that can lay their hands on you and sanctify you. It's your pledge of your good conscience before God that saves you. Baptism only pictures, doesn't perform your salvation. And so as a Christian, you must not retreat into the sign of baptism for your confidence. Rather than retreat into a symbol, as Christians, we have to step boldly forward into the new life that you have in Jesus and walk in Him, is what Paul said. He says, as you began, so walk in Jesus. You have to live out your life, make certain of your salvation and your safety in God by the life that you live, by the circumcised heart. Or I could say by the baptized heart. And so then you say, well, what value is it? There's no point to it. Well, you can't make too much of it. Sorry, I missed. I wanted to, to put in First Peter there as far as what baptism actually is. Peter says that the water symbolizes baptism that now saves you This water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Peter just wants to make clear that you understand that this this water of baptism that saves you is not because it's doing something physically. It's not washing you off. It's because of the pledge of good conscience in your heart that you trust in Jesus and that you trust in the promises of God. And so there is no confidence in your baptism to save you apart from it being a step of obedience in your new life with Jesus. The confidence in your salvation comes only from what Jesus has done and that you know that you are walking in the newness of his new life. Paul says, as you have received Christ, so walk in him, firmly rooted and then built up. That's where Christian confidence lies. But at the same time, there's a danger not only of just making too much of your baptism, but also making too little of it. At the same time, you must not think too little of it. Paul would never do that. He never says to the people in Colossae or anywhere else, because you live in a spiritual reality, you don't need any physical sign. right? And some people might take that approach. They might say, I don't need to be baptized. 
I have true faith. I'm a true believer. Right? I've been baptized by the Holy Spirit or I've been, you know, saved by Jesus and, and, uh, you know, I, I have true faith. I don't need a sign to confirm what I already know in my heart. But that's not what Paul says. That's not what Jesus said. He didn't say we didn't need a sign. And so if you're thinking, well, I have real faith, you know, I, I don't, I don't need a ceremony. I don't need a sign. I don't need a mark to give me confidence or to make me feel better. If you put yourself in that position, in a way, you're putting yourself in wisdom ahead of God. Because God has considerately given us the sign of baptism and Jesus has commanded us to be baptized. And so in the wisdom of God, he says, you need this sign, you need this mark. And don't think that I'm not doing anything. I am doing something. God's signs and God's marks are of great value to us. Baptism is a pointer to us of Jesus' amazing sacrifice and his authority and the power to put sin to death and to repurchase us for his own possession. Baptism is of value to us if we respond to the sign in God's grace and through trusting faith in such a way that you begin to live that life of faith that holds on to the grace that God has symbolized for you in that baptism. God is accomplishing something for you in baptism. He's giving you a sign. He's giving you a mark. He's giving you a sanctifying grace so that you have this point in your life where you say, I'm living differently because I'm remembering that my sin is put to death. It's not that baptism in itself it's because you know what baptism points to and that you've been taken hold of and you've grasped that covenant mercy of God. And so your baptism is of great value to you. It's a profound step of obedience. In Matthew 28:19, the Great Commission, that's what Jesus commanded his disciples to do. He said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. It's got to be important. It's one of the last things Jesus said. It's a vow. It's a pledge, Peter called it. He said it was a pledge of good conscience. It's a ceremonial sign of what Jesus accomplished. And it's a reminder to us of Jesus' sacrifice and God's faithfulness. And Paul uses circumcision as an example. I'll use, I'll use a wedding ceremony or a wedding ring maybe as an example. The ceremony is not the marriage. The wedding ring is not the marriage. But is the ceremony of the wedding unimportant? Is the ring unimportant? I don't get guys who don't wear their wedding ring. Some guys and girls, they don't wear their wedding ring all the time. I don't get it. I never take mine off. I see a guy who's not wearing a wedding ring and he's married. I think, what is up with you, man? That's shady. (laughs) Because as you're living your married life and you find yourself maybe on a business trip or in a bar that you're maybe not supposed to be there for the right reasons, you know, and you look down and you see that wedding ring, Is that wedding ring important? Is that telling you something about something, a deeper, significant relationship that you have? Right? And guys, you shouldn't be looking for anybody else because you married up, admit it. Right? Like, you know you married up. All guys marry up. And it's funny because women never say that. They never say, yeah, I married up. Right? (laughs) Every guy I talk to always admits that his wife is amazing. He's always like, look what I did. Look what I did. She's amazing. Like, way ahead. Like, I don't even know how I got her. When I'm talking to women, they never say, yeah, look at him, didn't I score? (laughs) Why is it guys always marry up and women marry down? I don't get it. But guys, you've got this wedding ring, you've got this ceremony, you've got this wedding ring because it's a sign, it's a mark, it's a symbol of a far deeper, significant, profound relationship, right? And in our relationship with Jesus, didn't we marry up, right? We all married up when we got into a relationship with Jesus. 
right? So this, so the baptism is a profound mark. It's a profound sign of a, of a deep relationship, a spiritual reality. And so it's important. Paul would never say it's not important, right? Circumcision established a person as part of the covenant community. It bound them to that community. It gained for the Jewish person the benefit of being a part of Israel. And they had the law pointing them towards God. And they were set apart as a nation. And God was active in their midst with prophets and scribes and teachers and priests. They had the temple. They could worship God and sacrifice. There was great value. Paul says, going back to Romans, when he's making this argument for circumcision in Romans 3.1, Uh, At the end of his argument in chapter 2, he says, what value then was circumcision? He says, much and in every way. Paul would not even malign circumcision. It was very valuable because it made them Jewish. They had God living amongst them. They had his priests. They had his law. They had his teaching. And so baptism must not be thought too little of either, as if it doesn't need to be done or as if it had no effect on you, right? as if it made no difference in your life, it makes a profound difference as much more than a difference of your marriage or your marriage ceremony or your wedding ring. And it's true that he's not accomplishing your salvation by baptism, but that does not mean that God is not doing anything at all by your baptism. He is doing something. The value of baptism in us is like that in circumcision. It establishes us as part of the covenant community with all the help that it is. When you're baptized as a believer, you sort of, it's that sort of entryway into the church, right? It's that sort of coming of age, or it's that sort of uh, welcome wagon into the church, and you become part of the community of the church. That you're recognized as part of the church, that, that are the spiritual gifts of the church are poured out on you, right? The people around you serve you, that you can come here for encouragement, that you come here for teaching, that you participate in all, you're a full participant in all the stuff that's going on here. Baptism is your entrance into that, just as circumcision was the entrance for the Jewish people into the nation of Israel. And so you have a new family, and you have brothers and sisters, and mothers and fathers in the faith, and you have access to all their spiritual gifts, and their encouragement, and their mentoring, and the fruit of the Spirit to teach and encourage and exhort you in your Christian walk. And baptism is also like marriage, as I mentioned, that it's like a ceremonial reminder of that pledge we have with God. Something we need. Not something God needs, something we need. We need these marks and these signs to help us in remembering that we're dead to our old flesh and that we're alive in Christ and we should act and walk in that way in our life. So you can look back on your baptism, you can think too much of it and you can think too little of it. And don't do either. Paul doesn't want you to do either. But there's a third place, really, you could be here today. You could be here today and maybe you're not baptized yet. And you need to look ahead to your baptism and understand the significance of it. That you're looking ahead to a sign and a symbol that you have not yet participated in. And I would encourage you, I hope your encouragement from this message today and from Paul is that it is important. That you won't put too much in it and think that because you're baptized, you're going to be somehow, you know, magically sealed forever, get to heaven. Don't think of it that way. But also don't think too little of it. Like, ah, it's optional. I don't really have to do it. You know, it's not a big deal. God doesn't care. God does care. And God is going to work through your baptism. You need to look forward to your baptism, not making too much on it, counting on it for what it can't do, but neither should you look forward to it or not look forward to it at all, making too little of it as if it's not really important. Jesus commanded it. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. God commanded this. And so this thing is somehow, uh, you know, that it's something optional is to question God's wisdom. 
is to question what God has decided is good and helpful and important for us. Your baptism, like circumcision, is a participation in a community of grace, and it pictures, it does not perform, but it pictures the truth of our death to our flesh and our life in Christ. And to the degree that we walk in what it symbolizes, we have confidence in the promise that it points towards. The heart of Paul is that we do not make too much nor too little of baptism but that we see it exactly for what it is. It's a symbolic entrance into a new spiritual life by which we live. We no longer live in the old flesh. That has not just been cut away. Our old flesh has actually been put to death. But we walk in the newness of rebirth, a new life in Christ Jesus and part of his covenant people. And that is relevant to every day of our life. Not just the day of our baptism. As Christians, it's relevant today, it's relevant every single day that we have that sign and that mark. Just like this marriage wedding ring is relevant to me every day. It's relevant to us every day that we have the mark of baptism in our life to remind us of the truth behind the symbol. And so I encourage you, if you haven't been baptized yet, you're a believer in Christ and you've just been holding off on that because you're not really sure whether you want to and whether it's important and all of those types of things, Hear the words of Paul. It is critically important, really important, that you partake in this symbol. This is a mark and a symbol and a sign that God has given to us as Christians, that we would come into his family through the waters of baptism. And we're actually having a couple of baptisms in uh, July 31st. We're going to have, hopefully, a couple of baptisms at the, at the uh, outdoor service in the park. And so there's lots of time for you to get ready for that, right? And we're going to be right there at the lake and it's going to be nice and warm and hot and we're going to go into the water and we're going to baptize some people. There's some other churches involved. Hopefully we're going to have like half a dozen or ten people getting baptized that day. And so I encourage you that if you are on the fence about baptism that you'll come and talk to me about it. Because God has so much planned for you through this. Just like he had planned for you through your marriage ceremony. To usher you into a new relationship that would change your life forever. That's what he's doing with baptism too. He's signing and sealing and giving you a mark of that relationship that you have in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for baptism. And uh, we thank you that you have been wise in giving us that sign and that mark. And we thank you that we married up. We thank you that, that, the, that this baptism is a, is a ceremony for us to go through uh, that just affirms the spiritual reality that we married up. That we, we are the ones that are gaining in this relationship. And so we gladly die to ourself and we go under the water, dead to our old flesh and our sinful nature, and we rise up alive in you in this relationship that just blows us away. That you would humble yourself to take on our flesh, to go to a cross for us. And we get to celebrate that in baptism and remember it for the rest of our life that we had that relationship with you, have that relationship with you. So Father, I pray that none of us would make too much of our baptism, that we would trust in it unhealthily, nor make too little of it, that it never mattered and doesn't matter. But we would know exactly what it is, the sign, the symbol, the mark of being brothers and sisters part of your family, part of a covenant community, a new spiritual kingdom that lives forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.